Okay, welcome to the Pitcasts. I'm your host, Iowa Hobb, one of the co-heads of the podcasting committee. And today we are here as part of our author's interview series. Today we have Riley and Ethan joining us. Uh, would y'all please introduce yourselves? Yeah, so my name is Ethan Dalkey, and I will be leading the discussion on today's episode. Hi, my name is Riley Bennett, and I'm the author of a paper called Appalachia about bluegrass historical narratives and U.S. legislation. It's really about how cultural development, especially that in Appalachia, has been impacted by both Black history and also systemic oppression in America. I'm a first-year undergraduate student here at Chapel Hill. Uh, my major is global studies. I have a double major in Asian studies and a minor in creative writing. The creative writing is actually really what draws me to music. I write poetry, and that's very kind of similar to songwriting. And I played an instrument, and that tied with the poetry. It's kind of where I get the music from. Could you share your reasoning for joining us today? Yeah, so um, I really wanted to come on here and talk because I feel like there's just not a lot of emphasis on underrepresented identities, and there's like the dominant idea of what people should be, and I think Appalachia challenges that, and I think it's important to talk about it. Okay, great. Uh, and could you give us just a short summary of your paper and um, the key arguments that you made? Yeah, so um, I analyzed multiple different sources. So one of them was Jenny Pickerel's Geographies of Difference. Another one was Dwight Billings and Ronald Lewis's essay called Appalachian Culture and Economic Development, A Retrospective View on the Theory and Literature. Another one was Charles Perryman's dissertation on the history of bluegrass music. And I also analyzed the Appalachian Regional Development Act. Now that all sounds kind of overwhelming, and it honestly kind of is because it's pulling from a lot of different angles. But what it boils down to in my eyes is really like it's the the development of like an entire music genre is not going to be simple. That's something I learned. But bluegrass is painted as simple. And so I was kind of asking the question like why? Like why do we view bluegrass and Appalachia as so like simple or like not normal but still just like very just kind of dumb in a way. Like that's honestly like the connotation that you get from a lot of um words spoken about both of those things, bluegrass and Appalachia. And so I kind of just dug a little bit deeper and I really found out that, like I said, bluegrass is very geographically diverse and it comes from a rich, rich history of both America, black history, and just a lot of things really coming together. And so I kind of just really I'm just really speaking about how like American history is not separate from global history and how the history of bluegrass music is not separate from either of those things. Like they all go together, even though we're taught that they're completely separate and alien from each other. Great. Thank you. So my first question is, what initially interested you in this topic? Why did you choose to look into this specifically as like a point of research? So I've always been a very like musical person. I used to play the saxophone and my grandfather played the trumpet. Like my whole family is musical. And um, I used to actually know some people in Appalachia that were part of a eugenics project. They didn't like run it, but they were some of the subjects. And so it's kind of like thinking about it. I was like, how could I tie together some historical parts of my own life and think about personal aspects in my research and I just came across bluegrass and I was like 
this seems really cool and nobody really researches it. So why not? That sounds interesting. So the Appalachian region is geographic, but also like a cultural region that has been significant throughout American history. And so I was wondering if you could talk about like what makes it special or unique compared to like other regions of the country. Yeah. So something in my paper that I speak on a lot is the Appalachian Regional Development Act. And so a big thing about Appalachia and American history is that it's constantly been like thought about to be as this other part of America. It's almost honestly viewed as some kind of like foreign place, even though it's just within America. Like it spans state lines. So it has nothing to do with boundaries that we draw on a map. It's really just that mountain range and it's not actual physical separation, but within the American public and the American government, a figurative separation from the rest of the country. Yeah. And I saw that in your paper, you talked about like geographical difference and that's something that you just mentioned. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on like that specific concept and like the othering of these groups and like the ways in which the Appalachian region specifically has been harmed by by this concept. Yeah. So in my paper specifically, I talk about a piece by Jenny Pickerel called Geographies of Difference. And in that, she's speaking on how people in power really have the ability to separate us based on our geography. It's not actually the geography itself doing it. So it's kind of like Appalachia is this mountain range and it's in America, but we view it as so vastly different because it's we've been taught that. It's not necessarily actually that way, but a lot of people don't understand that. And there's like a reason that there's this narrative about Appalachia being so different and what I argue is that it has to do with like their abundance of natural resources and like the need for those in United States industry. And it would make a lot of sense considering like all the legislation we've seen be written about Appalachia and like, oh, we need to solve their poverty. But solving their poverty has only really been like a side effect whenever we've been like using their coal and lumber to fuel our own industries. Right. And I mean, I personally like in reading news articles or looking at like the history of the region, I've I've definitely noticed that that there is this a difference in like attitudes and opinions about Appalachia compared to like other mountainous regions in the United States, like the Rockies, for example. Like I certainly don't see people that live in like the Rocky Mountains receive that kind of treatment that they do in Appalachia. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's really interesting because honestly, some of the ways that Appalachia is spoken about, um, it sounds very similar to modern colonization, like how the U.S. would speak about Puerto Rico or like anywhere in Africa that they had previously colonized. It sounds so eerily similar that it's like, how can we just ignore it and not realize that there's like a pattern going on kind of thing? Right, right. And I know you mentioned that the federal government did pass the Appalachian Regional Development Act of 1965. And I, I saw that in your paper, you talked about how this was intended to address the poverty rates and like it did lessen the extent of poverty in the region, but that the passage of this act also has a lot to do with the abundance of natural resources in the region. And so I was just wondering in your research, do you did you find that this particular act was like more beneficial to the region or is it more exploitative? So... It's more that it's claiming that it has a beneficial goal 
so that it can like build the Appalachian Regional Highway, which is what its solution to poverty was, was the construction of a massive highway through the mountain region, which I don't know. I read that and I was like, that's really weird. Why would we not just give them some kind of aid rather than like build just a road? And when I thought of that, I thought of like the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina specifically. Um, The Blue Ridge Parkway brings in like a lot of money from tourism and it allows the government to also like maintain a supply chain, which only exists due to capitalism, which is like by nature exploitative. And in the act, they also do address, they say like, oh, Appalachia has this great abundance of natural resources. We need to help them because of this. So it's almost more like I'm questioning whether or not they would have done anything at all had Appalachia been like any other region that wasn't so abundant with natural resources. Right. So so you're saying that that if the natural resources weren't there, they wouldn't have received the same help and assistance from the government? Yeah, I'd be just interested to see how they act because these natural resources aren't just going to grow back very quickly like lumber and coal. Like once that's gone, it's kind of gone. Really, you kind of just have to see how the government is going to act once they're done taking all of it. So it's just something to watch and look out for and also look how they interact with other areas that don't have the same the same natural resources that Appalachia does. Right. And and you mentioned that one of the primary things about this was that they wanted to construct this highway but then i saw that it was not even completed and so i was wondering if you could go into a little bit of the story behind that and like why hasn't it been completed yeah so i mean it kind of makes sense that it hasn't been completed because if you're building this road through a very mountainous region like that's challenging and They wanted to do it initially to connect it to the rest of the country, which if you stop your logic there, it sounds very valid and very wonderful. But honestly, it's kind of weird because they projected it to be completed by like 2040 is what they were saying back at the last time I read it. And they could have amended it by now. I haven't checked in a couple months, but it's almost just like you wrote this act in 1965. Why are you writing something to solve poverty rates, which should be like much more urgent than almost a century later. That's so weird, in my opinion. I think it'd be a lot more urgent. Yeah, yeah, I I, I definitely agree. And I think that infrastructure and like building infrastructure is certainly important in uh, improving the lives of people in a community. But I think that there might have been better ways mm-hmm. to address poverty rates in the region than just building a highway. Yeah. And it's also the highway also is kind of interesting because they can pour as much or as little money into it as they want. So it kind of becomes this vessel where they can like tap into resources from one certain area and then decide to stop building if it's not giving them the money that they need to warrant continuing construction. Right, right. Uh, So now I want to shift a little bit and talk talk a little bit about uh bluegrass and the the music there and so first i just want to know what about the appalachian region made it right for bluegrass to start there and like have its origins there as opposed to somewhere else 
Yeah, so bluegrass is a really interesting genre of music because we associate it so closely with the Appalachian region. But actually, bluegrass is honestly pretty global. The banjo actually comes from West Africa and the mandolin comes from Italy, all that kind of stuff. And those are very specific to bluegrass. And so that obviously came to America through the slave trade. And so it's really like not necessarily what in Appalachia caused the music to happen. I honestly think it was more just like this, these people were there at the time. Like Arnold Schultz, he is not recorded at all. That's a um, black man who knew Bill Monroe, who's considered the father of bluegrass. But Arnold Schultz actually taught Bill Monroe everything he knew. And and Bill Monroe is quoted saying that multiple on multiple occasions to the public, like I was taught by Arnold Schultz. He deserves credit, but he was never recorded or anything like that. So honestly, a lot of it has to do with black history and the slave trade as a whole and what it brought to America. Okay, that's that's interesting. So you're saying it's more of instead of being in like that region specifically, it's more of just a product of circumstance where all the right elements were in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it is that. And I do think it's interesting that it happened in Appalachia, especially around the time, because if you go back to the um, the Development Act that the government passed, bluegrass came about like 20 years before that. And so it's almost like they had this big cultural boom. And then the government was like, let's write this act and let's see what we can do to, quote unquote, help them, but also help ourselves. Right. And so with with this like close connection between bluegrass music and the Appalachia region, do you think it's fair to say that if if someone were to listen to bluegrass music, that they would get a fair representation of Appalachian culture? Or do you think that there are like certain voices or perspectives that are left out or misrepresented? I definitely think bluegrass is a big part of Appalachian culture, thinking about how the music sounds and like how it portrays living life. It's it's definitely part of it, but it's not all of it. There obviously like anywhere else, there's a very diverse group of people that live there. You can't really make assumptions at all. Appalachia is such a huge geographical area. It runs from like Georgia to Maine. Like the Appalachian Mountains are thousands of miles. So like once you get from one end to the other, it's not going to be remotely similar. And bluegrass honestly changes if you look at different areas in Appalachia. A lot of bluegrass artists don't even come from Appalachia. Uh, but um, the ones that do, like they're vastly different from place to place. So it's really, if you want to know about the culture, like if you want to like put all these people into one group saying they're from Appalachia, that's really overgeneralizing. Right, right. And like, I know that it is a pretty, pretty big region. And like, there are a lot of differences in different parts of the region, like even down to whether you pronounce it as Appalachia or Appalachia. So I, I can definitely see that being a part of it, but not necessarily representing every single or representing Appalachia as like a homogenous place. So I, I definitely can see that. In your paper, you you mentioned that bluegrass has been described as a fruit of union. And so I was wondering if you could explain like sort of what that means and like what what stylistic elements have like come into play in order to make bluegrass bluegrass. Yeah, so like I spoke about earlier, the banjo coming from West Africa is a big one. So that comes like directly from the slave trade. Um, the mandolin coming from Italy is another big one. Those are like two of the really big instruments that 
are played in bluegrass music. And actually, bluegrass is the only genre of music that the banjo will have a solo in at all. So that's kind of interesting. And then the tempos and like how they change and how the music sounds, it has a very like swing element, kind of like the blues. So that also, again, goes to Black history as the blues come from like Black history in America. It's really just a combination of sounds that came together over the course of hundreds of years, not just when it was defined in the 1940s. That's only when it got its name. That's not when it was in its formation is really what that means. Yeah, I I definitely see how like all these different things come into play. And so I, I think with what you've been saying about how like bluegrass is not just from Appalachia, but is truly global. But I know at least for me, like someone who does not really listen to that kind of music, I do mostly just associate it with the Appalachian region. So I was wondering, like, what are things that could be done to sort of popularize bluegrass on a more like on a wider scale or like highlight the global the the more globalness of the genre? I feel like that doesn't necessarily have to do with listening to the music. I'm going to be honest, like bluegrass is not my top genre. It's not the first thing I go click on when I open Spotify, but it is good music still. That doesn't take away from that. But I think it more has to do with thinking about the narratives that we're taught by our society and taking the time to really kind of pick at them and think a little bit deeper about these topics. Like if you're given like, oh, bluegrass is from Appalachia. That's such a bland statement. Right. Nothing is that simple. So like if you just think into a little bit more, that's kind of why I wrote this paper. I was like, well, I had no idea at all of anything. I didn't know about any of this. And I just kind of researched it. And I was just honestly shocked. I was like, there's so much more to this than I was ever taught in school or in the newspaper or anything. And it's so underrepresented that it's kind of like it deserves more attention in like the media or in news articles, stuff like that. And I just think I think that there are a lot of things we can focus on. But specifically for me, this is important now that I've put so much work and time into it. Right. And so I think that 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 it's important to like push back on these narratives and like the these like dominant ways of thinking that we've been taught that might not necessarily be the best way of looking at things. And so I think it's really interesting that you were looking at bluegrass as sort of a way of looking at American history and like American society. And so I I was wondering if you'd comment on on what it was like analyzing history and society in Appalachia and the United States as a whole through the lens of music. So yeah, it the something it really reinforced within me was that facets of history are not separate pieces. They're all tied together and they all go together. And if they are taught separately and like they're totally alien from each other, there's a reason that we're taught that. And that kind of goes along with historical narratives again. But it's honestly really just like sometimes you have to put the pieces together yourself and it takes a little bit more work, but it's worth it because once you understand that all these things go together, then it kind of you can see the bigger picture rather than just one thing and another thing. Right, right. Yeah. Um, And so I was also wondering, like, going back to Appalachia and like, tying this all together you mentioned a lot about how the poverty rates in the region and like 
all of that. And so I was thinking, like, what are some things that could be done from what you've learned to help these people who feel like they've been left behind by the government and aren't really having their voices heard that is different than what the government's approach has been so far? Yeah, honestly, like, you know, the way you listen to somebody, how they're speaking, you don't just automate a response. That's not what listening is. But that's what the U.S. government has done time and again. And that's what they've done with Appalachia as well as like places they've colonized. So it's kind of just a matter. I think the best thing that we could do for honestly anyone that's in a marginalized group similar to the people in Appalachia it would be to listen to what they're saying. Because people aren't going to ask for things generally that they don't need. So like if there's a, a place that has higher poverty rates, there might be a reason. But who's going to know better than the people that are living in that situation? You know what I'm saying? Right. Do you think that bluegrass music could be an entry point or like a starting point for listening and like paying attention to the Appalachian region. Oh yeah, absolutely. Bluegrass music comments on how people in Appalachia live. And like I say in my paper, I mentioned the first bluegrass song called New England's Annoyances, which was, I'm pretty sure, anonymous. Like they don't know who the author is. But in that song, they talk a lot about how the American public and the American government are just totally, totally wrong about how the people in Appalachia live. But yet they're still sitting in their high chair, like writing legislation about us. How, what do they know kind of thing. It would definitely be a good alley to look through, like music and cultural and arts, all that kind of stuff. Because in order to make art about something or to make comedy about something, you have to understand. And one of the big narratives about Appalachia in America is that Appalachians don't understand. They're dumber than us. They don't know how to live life properly. But in reality, they're living in different geographical situations really like we're the ones that don't understand like we don't know how to live mountain life if you drop me in the Appalachian mountain region right now I I don't know what I would do but if I had a history of living there like I would know what to do and I would know what I needed to live and live a good life there yeah and I I think what what you've said definitely testifies to the power of music to help people understand and like see different stories and ways of life that are different from their own and I know for me like if I go to listen to a bluegrass song that would be a completely different way of life than what I've experienced and so I think I think that music is definitely a great way to sort of open people's eyes to things that they have not experienced. No, yeah, it absolutely is. There are just like countless examples. Another one that comes off the top of my head, different genre of music would be Bad Bunny and his form of almost like rebellion along with Puerto Rico to the US. And I think it's I think it's so important to look at music and look at what people are creating to just really understand. I think that just identities in general, like cultural identities are very important to understanding the government and how the country is running, not just the numbers. In my paper, I talk about poverty rates and stuff to strengthen my argument. And the poverty rates are important, but economic GDPs and production, all of that, I I personally, I don't like those. I think they just like turn us into numbers and numbers we don't even understand, to be honest. But what we can understand is what people are creating and how they're able to interact with other people. 
Right. So one final question for you. So you said before that bluegrass was not necessarily your top genre. And so I was wondering, after doing all this research and writing this paper, do have do you have a new new appreciation for bluegrass genre? Yeah, absolutely. No, it it wasn't before and like maybe it's not like my favorite music, but I can appreciate any kind of good music and I like I listen to a wide variety. Sometimes I do listen to bluegrass. It's just something it's it has its own kind of charm and it's something that I didn't really pay attention to cuz I was like, oh, like I don't really like how the banjo sounds. But like it's something else to appreciate. It's a completely different instrument that I'm not used to. And so it's really refreshing, honestly, to just try something new. And I just didn't, I didn't get that before I looked into it more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm the same way. And so thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about your paper. Yeah. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this process.